Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. If you're of a certain age, this narrator probably sounds familiar. Man has speculated on what lies hidden deep beneath the surface of the sea. Now he need no longer speculate. As he enters once more, the mysterious dark world that spawned him 300 million years ago. In an awesome new fleet of deep sea exploration submersibles, he finds himself gaining at last admission to the depths of the world's last frontier. It's not hyperbolic to say that Jacques Cousteau's televised undersea explorations were revolutionary. They offered views of a part of the world that had been previously long dreamed about, but inaccessible. And that are still restricted to nature documentaries, unless you work for the government or are a billionaire. The members of the semi-legal DIY submersible community, however, challenged that. Matthew Gavin Frank wrote about his journey 2,000 feet below the surface with Carl Stanley, who takes his homemade sub on deep sea runs for the low, low price of $1,000. I mean, come on, that's, that's a steal. I spoke with Frank about his anxieties about the trip, the role of obsession in his own writing and in Stanley's voyages, Aristotle, and the mind-melting experience of seeing what so few others have. I should say... Anxiety is a big part of this essay, but maybe we'll get to that a bit later okay, in the conversation. Okay. Um, I feel, <laughs> yeah. which is fine. I uh, I also I also need medication. Yeah, for that. yeah it's something, right? Um, <laughs> I tried yeah. to minimize it in the essay. Um, I I didn't know. I, I I it's interesting that you saw it as a big thing still looming there. I. I kind of thought it was like more toward the background haunting it, but um, I'm glad it's there. That's all right. <laughs> so there's this question of anxiety, but there's also kind of in the in the character, of, you know, sort of your uh, your guide to the underworld, Carl Stanley. Uh, I feel like, and then also Carl Stanley's neighbor. Um, you gotta have this this vibe of like a certain type of American drawn to. Central America, maybe a tinkerer, maybe an adventurer, an outsider, what have you. So, is there something about Central America that draws these guys there? Um, there are, without them using the word libertarian, there are some libertarian sensibilities that really permeate. Um, I don't know a lot of a lot of their endeavors and a lot of their outlooks on aspects of life that are, say, tethered to quote-unquote regulation, right? Um, <laughs> so I, I feel like Carl Stanley was um, likewise, I think he saw himself as a renegade, as some, he fancied himself maybe some modern-day pirate, um, mm -hmm. uh, living, I guess, in in part off off the grid because his, his house was two-thirds constructed out of a dead coral reef, um, so it looked like he was he was it looked like he was living in some condemned castle of bone um, out there on the yeah out there, out there on the Honduran coast. Um, but governmentally speaking, he talked a lot about how um, uh, Honduras's government um, really did not impose regulation um, on many factions of the populace, um, including an expat like himself who wanted to take paying customers down in his DIY submersible um, yes. that there would not need any kind of paperwork, 
or license or certification or insurance. Um, so, um, and then also to be fair to Carl, there was something else that, that brought him out to that area. Um, and that was to quote him because he repeated this over and over and over again. He, he said to me, I've shaped my entire life around being close to deep water, close to shore. Um, and there in Roatan, Honduras, he could be as close to deep water, as close to shore, um, uh, I guess as possible on, on, our, on our planet. Yeah. No, and I mean, of all the projects one might do themselves, building a submarine seems like one of the least advisable. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, uh, you know, do you know much more about the professional routes available to aspiring submariners, submariners, what, what, you know, correct adjective there? <laughs> yeah, so, so most of my, my research is, is, um, uh, <laughs> oh, uh, along the, the lines of the least uh, of the least advisable path with regard to submarines <laughs> with, so, um, I'm, I'm actually, um, I'm, I'm working on a whole book um, that is in part engaging the uh, the DIY submersible um, community, and so I'm, I'm really burrowing into you know that kind of like niche um, offshoot of um, let's say you know the submariner culture, um, and so um, but certainly there are there are plenty of of professional routes available. Um, one could go into marine engineering if one were so inclined. Um, so a lot of the uh, the government um, owned submarines and and military submarines are are actually you know run on nuclear energy. So um, yes. yeah, so one could you know um, conceivably if if one wanted to pursue work on a, a submarine, one could go into nuclear engineering. Um, one could work for a, a governmental or marine science organizations um, that deal with um, underwater exploration in that way. One one could just be a technician or uh, uh, a machinist or a welder or an underwater welder. Um, uh, I, I actually interviewed one amazing underwater welder who worked off the coast in Alaska with the stunning name of Stosh Ginger, um, the underwater <laughs> oh welder. <my> yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, um, a, a whole host of naval and military work. Um, if, if you want to be a missile technician, um, you, you might be able to get work on a, a submarine that has missiles attached to its flanks. Wow. Frogmen, whatever. Yeah, oh, that's good. Yeah, that's like good. Frogmen, engine men. <laughs> yeah, all of those, all of those men jobs. <laughs> yes, yes. But, um, but again, like I, I'm doing some cursory research on, on the official um, and getting really excited and burrowing more into the unofficial, or as you put it, the least advisable path <laughs> available to those who think they might be interested in pursuing a career in submarines. But I mean, there there do seem to be some real reasons why some builders go through the less professionalized route. Um, it's expensive to have a sub professionally tested at least in America, in getting the vehicle insured costs around $100,000. Maybe you don't want to work for the government. So, I mean, it's it's ironic that doing something so intrepid and so far afield from a conventional life path has such a steep price tag, no? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, and I, I suppose with a guy like, like Carl, too, um, 
um, you know, to go the professionalized route, um, I think you have to be like innately good um, at um, mathematics and science and engineering um, as it's taught in um, our schools. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, Carl um, was, a, a, a you know, kind of like um, anti a lot of uh, uh you know, institutions and things like that. One of one of which was the it was you know our educational system. Um, he really rebelled uh, against against that. Um, and I, I have a whole host of stories I could tell about that. But to, to stick to the question, um, I I guess it's ironic that that something um, so unconventional can be really expensive. But I'm also wondering if it's if it's uh, you know likely these these very factors um, of it being kind of renegade and so far afield um, uh, that, that make it expensive for the amateur. Um, because historically, um, as I mentioned, most um, underwater exploration fell under the umbrella of protected, um, just kind of official bodies that oftentimes had reason to protect their endeavors. Um, right. like, you know, the world governments, um, like our militaries, um, like the, the Marine Technology Society, like the American Bureau of Shipping, um, uh, the Coast Guard and things like that. So, um, because they, it, it fell under those umbrellas of the more official bodies, I think they wanted to keep, um, those who were laboring unofficially out of it. Um, mm -hmm. and so it became prohibitively expensive for, for the amateur. Um, and a, another factor that I think is, is kind of weird and interesting is, is that while the actual endeavor may be unconventional, somebody actually doing the work via, you know, um, you know, uh, risking their lives uh, in a trial and error format to explore um, our oceans in a <laughs> DIY submersible. Um, I feel like it, that's, it, the endeavor is also kind of rooted in I don't know, maybe, maybe, I don't know if it's innate, but this kind of, um, this kind of human dreaminess and, and, mm -hmm. and wonder that many of us have about these sorts of spaces that we, we think are unattainable, like, like the deep sea or, or outer space, for instance, right. um, which makes the satisfaction of those desires, like actually exploring those spaces extremely rare and so maybe expensive um, because yeah. the, the supply is so low and the demands are, are, are so high, which is why I guess it's like the, I don't know, the, the Shatners and the Musks of the world are the ones who, who get to blast themselves into into orbit, um, you know, while <laughs> the rest of us just kind of dream on the stars from the hard surface. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that, that you know, the, the way the piece ends where you're sort of unable to sleep because you've been so moved and also during the voyage like unable to speak about what you were seeing that it's just this incredible thing that is ephemeral and yet you were so close to it and you were part of this rarefied community of people well i guess you know you could go down to honduras pay pay carl whatever but like it's a very it's a very um yeah, it's so it's so far from our day to day experience in a way that is, you know, uh, kind of sublime. Yeah. And it's um, a, a lot of the folks, again, to, to whom I spoke, Carl included, um, 
really feel a lot of these DIY folks, um, uh, submersible enthusiasts really feel that um, that kind of wonder um, that one experiences in the deep sea, 2000 feet down, um, should be available to more of us. Um, yeah. Carl um, complained over and over and over again how, how the deep sea um, outside of the world government, world governments and, and militaries, um, it's becoming the playland only of the billionaires who are um, contracting out to these companies to build them their own submersibles that they then install on the backs of their mega yachts. And it's basically toys for billionaires. And, and Carl had a big problem with that, um, um, with, with that environment being available only to that faction of the populace. And so um, even though Carl was, you know, of course, still charging folks, I, I, I guess I'll be above board about it. But um, and thank goodness Harper's paid for it. But um, <laughs> Carl, you know, he's taking folks down for like a thousand dollars. Yes. Uh, the other person I found who, um, to take me down was in the Canary Islands um, of Spain, um, and he was going to charge twenty thousand. Um, so mm. yeah, there was a there was a big jump there. So. Um, I know, yeah, thousand dollars is a lot of money, um, and yet uh, it's not twenty thousand. So. Yeah, no. Um, sort of reiterate, you know, to back up what you said. Famously, Ghislaine Maxwell was the founder and and leader of the Terra Mar project, which was like an oceanic conservation thing that yeah. she started, and she was like. When when she was not, when they couldn't find her, some people were like, maybe she's in a sub because she has a sub license. And maybe that's the kind of person that shouldn't just be limited to the Glenn Maxwells of the world. Right. Um, open it up. But, you know, during um, during the journey, you know, I mean, you, you read about this before. So this is a dangerous proposition, obviously. Yeah. Um, but I'm more, I, you know, I would love to know more generally about how living in words relates with your anxiety you know just just living in a world full of references of connecting to things that you know feel like a source of comfort for you <laughs> um this is this is a fun question because i feel like it's it's different for me in 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 life life and then in writing life i guess mm. um uh so um i th- feel like when I'm burrowing into a project um, like this, like a, whether it's an article like this or then the, you know, the, the, the book entire, um, I, I almost feel like, and I guess because I am living in a world of words and stitching language to all of this, you know, anxiety and fear and feeling and exhilaration, um, it, I, I feel like I feel like stitching language to it maybe simultaneously makes it more mysterious and more manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess like um, I guess sometimes I, I write about these things maybe in order to try and and you know um, however futilely contextualize my my own fears and anxieties about these bits of subject matter, even though I am kind of rabidly curious about them also. Um, and I know, um, you know, so, so that, you know, French essayist, the, the guy from the 16th century, you know, Michel de Montaigne, who's, you know, sometimes brilliant, sometimes infuriating, <laughs> but <laughs> he always talked about how, um, he, he felt that it was beneficial, um, to, um, I'm going to butcher his quote, but something like rub and polish our brains against 
the brains of others. Um, mm. And, um, you know, the, the essayist Leslie Jameson talked about how doing that kind of thing and, and research and conducting research um, into um, one's own story, really. Um, and then, of course, finding the stories of others along that along the way. Can she said something about it sensitizing us to to points of of connection? And so, yeah, I feel like when I'm writing, um, compelling my own curiosities to bump up against like the curiosities and stories of others um, can foster this. Uh, can foster this like beguiling like interaction between like my personal narrative or personal interest or personal obsession with a bit of subject matter with the the attendant like contextualizing or or or, or, or sensitizing research or or voices um, whether that voice is Carl Stanley's or or someone else's so um, so even if this act I guess fails to adequately you know, slake my fears or contextualize any of my own anxieties. Um, I just enjoy the conversation, you know? Um, and so it, it, it makes the world seem larger and more mysterious, which is also oddly comforting, um, that largeness and, and mystery. Um, and since these endeavors are typically bound to language, like, you know, writing and talking, um, I, I guess, yeah, the, the crafting words around such things can make them paradoxically more mysterious and and more manageable. Um, I, the short answer to this question is, I don't know. I'm, I'm, ever, <laughs> I'm ever mystified by it, I guess. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, much of your piece is centered on your own relationship with obsessiveness. And you, you write that you come from a long line of OCD sufferers, um, and that has led you to write about obsessive people though not necessarily to examine your own fixations until now. I mean, you know, because Carl seemed to kind of bristle at your suggestion that he was obsessed with submarining. Why do you think he'd be inclined to make this distinction between, let's say, skill and obsession? Oh, oh, um, Carl was the sort of guy who's inclined to make lots of distinctions. Um, <laughs> he, he, he can be very literal, um, ultra, as he, you know, put it, um, he, he said to me, um, I remember, so I, I asked him, um, and this was actually, I think via a WhatsApp conversation he and I were having, like after I had actually left Honduras, um, you know, I asked him if he would consider, you know, his, um, affair with DIY submersibles to be the product of obsession. And he, he actually said to me, obsession hmm let me get back to you on this and so the next day i get a link to the word obsession from dictionary.com um (laughs) and he said well based on this dictionary definition i wouldn't say um i'm a, a you know i have an obsession I would say I'm highly focused. Um, and that's how he defined it, uh, I guess. And so he's very literal. He's also a contrarian. Um, and I think Carl, um, I don't want to assume this, but he struck me this way. He seems to be the sort of person who's more comfortable and accustomed to burrowing into like niche geek speak and getting like really nerdy um, about 
subs and subparts um, in a way that almost bordered on the erotic and fetishistic. Um, <laughs> propellers and ballast <laughs> tanks and acrylic windows. Um, he was he was more like that sort of person than a than a self analytical person. Um, very very mm, liberal. Yes. So yes. Um, when you asked him to talk about himself and his motivations and were they rooted in obsession and um, things like that, he he tended to steer the conversation more toward the other. Do you feel like artistry rewards the obsessive because we are because it sometimes feels like we are in an era where the obsessive flourishes, you know, because our anxiety is being just sort of ramped up to 11 at all times because of of technology and just the state of the world. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, I wonder if, if artists um, have always kind of felt that across, you know, um, <laughs> time, space, region, culture. I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, was, I, I, I feel like the anxieties of our time are, are so <laughs> absolutely profound um, and, and, you know, shape art making in, in such intense ways right now. Um, but I, I wonder, um, did every generation of artists, you know, feel that way too? Um, I don't know. Um, it's it's t it's tough to answer, like uh, um, because I I don't uh, does, does artistry re reward the obsessive? Um, I could just say I I think you know for me and based on my own narrow observations as stitched to my own little life. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so because like I I wonder. Again, you know, um, from from my limited perspective, I, I just wonder if it's even possible to hang with an artistic project, um, a book or a film or a play or a painting or sculpture or dance or music um, without being a little obsessive. Um, how does one hang with it um, um, over, you know, the course of not just, you know, the duration of a particular project, which can take years, but um, over over the course of a lifetime as, as somebody who feels like art making is an important thing. Um, so uh, I, I'm not sure if this era is more rewarding to obsessives <laughs> than other ones or not, but um, uh, it, yeah, I, fe I, I feel like, um, I don't know. I, I feel like art <laughs> for me is the product of obsession. Like, I don't know if I can do it without it. So. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, do you feel like you changed in some lasting way as a writer after you were submerged so deeply into the unknown, after you saw this rarefied thing that so few people have seen? Oh, um, wow. Um, this is, this is a tough question. Was I changed in a lasting way? Um, I don't, I don't know. I feel like I'm still parsing it out. Um, mm. um, and, and working th through it. Um, I, I don't quite know what I felt down there. Um, if that makes sense, because I, um, have never, I've never, I've never felt anything, anything like it before. Um, 
so I felt so unstuck from my own obsessions uh, down there. Violet. Like I, I, I felt, I felt unstuck from language. I felt unstuck from, from time. I felt unstuck from my own body. Um, like it, it would be easy to say, like, I felt a sense of peace, but it wasn't that I didn't really feel peaceful. Um, it felt like it wasn't like not, not that, but it was like something else. Um, like I, I felt like if if not invisible, then just gone, <laughs> um, you know, um, like completely quieted. Um, I I I think a lot about um, so um, the poet, the essayist, and and the and the fiction writer Alberto Rios once wrote in this in this beautiful poem. Some call it a flash lyric essay. Um, it's called "Some Extensions on the Sovereignty of Science," um, and Rios wrote. Um, words are our weakest hold on the world. Um, and I think this kind of gels with some of the stuff we're talking about, you know, how we bind um, oftentimes the unnameable to language, um, whether language adequately or inadequately contextualizes that intense kind of, you know, formative stuff. And, and, and I'm wondering, maybe because I felt so holographic down there um, and like completely unimportant and because it stripped any notion of like legacy or posterity of their illusions of of permanence um if i was changed in any lasting way as a writer maybe maybe i feel even freer to indulge in weirdness on the page um <laughs> but really really i've always been cool with that so <laughs> yeah. so I'm, I'm, no because i mean the think you know the 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 end you know when you're actually in the submarine the the relationship with language just loses its shape or its concreteness and it was just so you know these these incredible this incredible prose that's sort of mind-bending but still giving a sense of what is happening like it's very um evocative it, it's you know um hypnagogic <laughs> almost yeah yeah i love that word i i always confuse like hypnagogia and hypnopompia like i forget oh like, uh, yes like which yes. is that liminal state like where you move from sleep toward wakefulness and which is the one where you move from from wakefulness towards sleep it's like i always have to look up stalactites and stalagmites too like which is which? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah well because i mean this you know for for someone like carl who just does this every day. Yeah. Do you think he has, he still experiences that sort of profundity? Because again, you said he's very, he's very literal minded. So did you, did you talk about what seeing this stuff kind of means for him? Yeah. So um, he, I actually asked him this directly. Um, it didn't make it into the article because so much didn't make it into the article um, because of word count and things. And so um, Carl, um, yeah, he is not desensitized to the wonder of the deep sea. What he struggles with um, because he's monetized his sub and it's his sole source of income um, he struggles with dealing with the economics of it, dealing with a customer base and sewing that kind of um, innate, I'll still call it an obsession, whether he wants to call it high focus or not. Um, and like sewing that obsession into just kind of like an economic endeavor. I don't think Carl loves dealing with people so much. Um, <laughs> and so um, he certainly um, sometimes sees it as work when he takes folks down um, but he also um, goes down himself um, a lot. 
and um, sometimes he'll um, anchor the sub on a, a coral shelf and he'll spend the night down there. Um, Whoa. At depth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, you know, experiences no love of, you know, with regard to the return to the surface. Um, he's always wanting to go back down. I, I actually asked him if he considered it in part to be um, an addiction, but he really bristled um, at that word too after, yes, mm. looking it up on dictionary.com. <laughs> Um, and, and telling me that he says no, because addictions are bad for you. Um, so mm, to, yes, to simplify. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so we, we've sort of been talking around the danger of, uh, submersible, you know, uh, it's the Edabel or the Idabel? Um, Idabel. So, so let's hear more about the Idabel's physical bearing because you know you mentioned like some of her is held together with velcro and you know just the fact that there's thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure being exerted on this tiny little thing as you say does that does not um have the correct amount of echo to it it just feels like a very very enclosed space so i mean what were the least comforting details you noticed about the ship as you were preparing to entrust your life to her and Carl. Yeah, yeah. So, so, uh, so to be fair, so like the Velcro was on the inside, like the outside. Oh, okay. You know, the outside wasn't held together with like Velcro or tape or anything. Like, no, <laughs> that that would have been like yow. Um, but that won't keep the water out. But <laughs> um, so uh, I'm I'm also I'm. So I've had a lifelong fear of the ocean. I can't swim. And I'm also a little claustrophobic. Um, I'm afraid of elevators. I don't like getting into elevators. And so the the size of the thing was, um, you know, one of the least comforting details. It was, it was tiny. So it was made up of three spheres. Um, it looked, I guess, from the outside, like a tiny helicopter. And then the bottommost sphere was the sphere that I rode in as the passenger, um, and it was about the size of like an industrial laundry dryer. Um, so very, very tight. Um, and, um, you know, I mean, thank goodness there was this, you know, big porthole that I could stare out of, um, in front of me and, and then another porthole at my feet. So the size of it was, you know, was troubling to me. Um, at least before we dove, um, the air, the, the sense of airlessness, um, and humidity in there. It was hot in Honduras, even in February. And so mm -hmm. um, I was just pouring sweat. I was also very anxious. Um, I was um, struggling for air. I thought I was going to hyperventilate. I was very close to calling the whole thing off. There were a lot of um, uh, things like dials and um, uh, wires held to the inside of the hull with like Velcro and duct tape and electrical tape. Um, so mm -hmm. that seemed very DIY. Um, yes. And then um, a lot of like, a, because to get to that little sphere at the bottom, I passed through this teeny sphere just above it, which was essentially Carl's captain's chamber. And, um, and you know, of course I was taking pictures and looking at all this, but um, all the knobs and the dials and the, the buttons and the joysticks they all look cribbed as if from, you know, some dumpster behind some defunct 1980s arcade. Um, <laughs> and, and like Carl's whole display was, it was like lit up like first generation Pac-Man. Um, and so, um, 
also the the fact that you know when i climbed into it it was it was still dangling from a strap in carl's backyard um which was also very diy so uh, all of it um made me very nervous i i researched of course um as a bit of a neurotic everything that could possibly go wrong at depth and if anything if any of those things went wrong at two thousand feet down um and this was confirmed by, by a, na- a naval engineer. The best thing you could hope for is to to be immediately crushed. Um, yeah. So that was like really playing in in my mind. So, yeah. <laughs> but you but you did go, you did go through with it. So what was it about the ship, or about Carl, or about your interest in this? Uh, not obsession that gave you some sense of calm that lets you know that you could do it. Yeah. Um, well, maybe it was because Carl was so highly focused. Um, he didn't just self-define that way. He really did, you know, base his whole life around this. And so for more than 20 years, he's, he's done like a hundred dives a year. Um, even though some of his early dives, things like the porthole cracked um, and water poured in mm-hmm. and he had to, he had to rock it to the surface. Um, and so, I mean, some of this stuff was initially early on death defying, but that hasn't happened for, you know, you know, probably, you know, close to 20 years. So um, I was trying to talk my nervousness into that, um, into statistics, of course, trying to tell myself, Oh, the most dangerous thing you're going to do on this whole trip is is taking the taxi ride from the airport, you know, <laughs> to your hotel and then back to the airport. And statistically, yes, that's true. Um, that is true. Of course, if something goes wrong with a car on the road, it doesn't mean certain death. <laughs> but, no. um, necessarily, not necessarily. And, <laughs> um, Carl also um, has has tricked out the sub with a lot of redundancies. Like for instance, um, as he, as he told me, he has he has four motors. Um, when he only needs two, the sub can, hmm. can can successfully operate on only two. So even if um, on the off chance, one motor fails, the sub still has one more than it needs. Um, and so, and he said, he actually admitted, even though the motors I use aren't the most reliable kinds. Um, uh. he, and then he, he admitted he has <laughs> motors fail once or twice a year, but he says his passengers never know it because of that complete second set. Um, right. So there's all of that stuff. Um, then, then personally, um, I don't know. This is a this is this is a, a, a you know a weird portion of the answer, I guess. But um, when I have the hiccups, um, I regulate my breathing in a particular way where I exhale more than I inhale, um, and just kind of work the hiccups out that way um, by mm. by um, putting out less air than I'm taking in. Um, and sometimes I practice that breathing exercise um, when I'm when I'm about to do something like this, you know, that I'm 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 really afraid of, um, and I I just um, kind of you know actively try and push out more fear or any thought <laughs> or emotion than I take in. Um, it's just kind of like this deliberate, almost like clearing of my head. Um, like pushing out, um, so doing kind of that breathing actually and metaphorically almost until I feel woozy enough to, to just do the thing. And as I mentioned earlier, it, it really does help me to tuck the fear into a project 
um, because I can yeah. be like really single-minded about pursuing this kind of project. Um, and that maybe is, is a good byproduct of that obsession and a reward that the obsession, you know, gives one, um, you know, that we were talking about earlier. So um, if I was writing a book about the history of elevators, um, I would probably, <laughs> you know, yeah, I would, I would have to do this kind of thing, tuck my fear of, of elevators into a project in order to ride them. Take down Otis. Um, <laughs> would you, so could you go a little bit into the history of submarining, you know, dating back to Aristotle? Um, do you figure there's a relationship between his curiosity about the physical world and specifically the marine life that he categorized and, and his philosophical work? Yeah. So, I mean, the wonderful thing about researching, um, you know, some of the early chroniclers of the submersible, like like Aristotle and and as it pertains to like Alexander the Great is, um, we, we know so little about their actual lives. Um, so a lot of, you know, what we, a lot of like the biography that we've stitched to guys like Aristotle and Alexander the Great are, um, are, are stitched to a lot of like educated speculation. So, um, so uh, he, he did, Aristotle, a lot of um, underwater exploration in, um, in what we presume to be the diving bell that he wrote um, so much about. Um, and so he, he became, folks still call him, you know, it's a patriarchal label, of course, but folks still refer to him as the father of marine biology, um, mm. Aristotle. And so um, he became the first to distinguish between um, a lot of different kinds of creatures that he called um, the blooded versus the bloodless, uh, the soft bodied, like octopi and squid versus the soft shelled, like lobsters and crabs versus the shell skins, like gastropods and bivalves and sea urchins and things. Um, and then he had this whole category about uh, mysterious creatures or miscellaneous creatures that, that he, he just couldn't shoehorn into any classification, like um, sea cucumbers and anemones and, and, and jellyfish. And so um, a lot of the language uh, that he used when chronicling um, some of these more miscellaneous creatures like jellyfish um, showed up uh, in, you know, on his, in his treatises on, on sleep and on dreams and on memory and on the soul. Um, he, he actually described memory as, as a jellyfish-like phantasm. Um, he, he described dream as, as waking life moving in a wave-like motion as if in a body of water, right? Um, so uh, the soul, um, I, I think, and, and he believed like the rational version of the soul resided in the heart rather than in the brain. Um, and he described it as a more wavy or indistinct or gelatinous form of a living being. And so I, I think um, the sea and his, his chronicling of the, the, the life therein um, gave him uh, the language to um, explore metaphor um, mm -hmm. uh, in his treatises on, on you know, dreams and, and memory, sleep, yeah. Yeah, no, because I mean, obviously Aristotle wasn't going as deep as you were, uh, you and Carl were, and, um, but there's still this, uh, this kind of mystical appeal 
of the sea. You know, Ishmael couldn't refuse it. Columbus, you know, he said he saw mermaids in the Caribbean, uh, which, and then of course there's like sea monks. <laughs> there are all these possibly apocryphal, but maybe real. Well, not, not mermaids. Mermaids are not real that we know of, but like, does this, there's something mystical about even the upper depths of the sea. I mean, do you feel like that, uh, where does that appeal come from? I mean, because because what you I mean, it's unfamiliar, but it's still pretty close to the surface, lit literally and sort of <laughs> um, uh, metaphorically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think as a spe as a species, we're, we're attracted to mystery. Um, uh, I mean, um, Carl, Carl himself um would kind of just often like wax rhapsodic about um, <laughs> early Arctic explorers and what they had to go through in in order to chart the previously uncharted. And so, um, so, so it's really interesting. Um, like um, with regard to the mystical and with mythologizing, you know, there's a beautiful aspect to it, and there's kind of an ugly aspect to it because part of mythologizing is is in a way claiming ownership with 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 human language and story that yes. we can digest um, yeah. of things that are not us and things mm -hmm. that we couldn't otherwise understand and we make those things more manageable um oftentimes sadly um so we could dominate them and wipe them out um yes <laughs> we, we often kill that which we first mythologize um it's a, it's another way of othering in a way and so um so there's really a dark side to that too but then there's also the other side that's stitched to like like wonder and the desire and 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 maybe like um some of the humility of witness and and so in talking to a lot of DIY submersible enthusiasts, there's this there's this conflict in the way that they talk about the sea um, and they make it, um, you know, mystical and mythological in, in, with their language. But then there, there's also just kind of like this weird malign, like um, sense of you know, stewardship and manifest destiny and stuff that, that, you know, that kind of, um, twines that too. I, I spoke with a person who's, who's busy building an underwater house, um, oh. <laughs> which, which sounds beautiful and interesting, but I, I, I can't help but wonder about the consequences. Like, um, it almost sounds like colonizing the moon. Um, yeah. but uh, again, in other moments, there's, there's that, that, that wonder of, of witness, um, that, that attends, this stuff that that I guess we're compelled to mythologize. Yeah, I mean to sort of continue the investigation of the mystical and to extend to the realm of metaphor. The ocean is sometimes viewed as the mother, right? And in tr in terms of like accepted science, uh, you know, it's sort of like in terms of evolutionary science, we're all on the same page that life first came from the ocean, right? Um, and a figure, key figure in this piece, a small one, but crucial character in this piece is you, your mother and the anxieties that she passed down to you, or at least the things that she told you that became your own myths, your own fears. Right. So I guess, how did you choose to interweave her into the, this this story? Because you could have discussed these uh, these fears uh, without without her presence, but you you chose to include her, and there's this weird sort of like parallel between the ocean as mother and 
your actual mother. Yeah. Wow. Um, that's 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 interesting. So yeah, I I wasn't intentionally thinking of that actual yeah metaphorical connection with with ocean with the fact that there there is already like a lot of you know writing about womb fantasy um, and things like that. Um, <laughs> as it attends um, folks who, you know, are obsessed with submarines and submersibles and confined spaces and, you know, other, you know, manifestations of, of claustrophilia um, rather than claustrophobia. Um, and so, yeah, there are all of these, these womb fantasies and things. God, why did my mom come into the piece? <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, I, I can't swim and I am afraid of the ocean. I've had a lifelong fear of the ocean and I've had recurring dreams um, since I was a child of, you know, being, you know, of, of swimming in, in the ocean and my mother being um, on shore on a chaise lounge. And I'm, I'm not going to like belabor the, the whole, the whole dream thing um, because very few people like hearing about other people's dreams. <laughs> <laughs> because they weren't there they can't empathize yeah so um and, and so anyway so I'm, I'm swept out and you know i begin drowning and this this beautiful um just kind of like laconic eel ribbons past and just kind of eyes me as i wane in the dream and as i'm gaps, gasping for air drowning this is this is when i wake up um and my mother was in the dream and my mother when she would hear me scream as a child um would come into my bedroom and and uh try and calm me down. Um, and early on, one of the stories that she might've misguidedly told me um, in order to calm me down um, was rooted in her own fear uh, of the ocean that she had since she was a child because she um, was swimming at Rockaway Beach and was swept away and her father dove in to save her. Um, he was not a strong swimmer either. And then soon thereafter, he was a used car salesman and he was um, delivering a used car to a, a customer. Soon thereafter, he died um, in, in a car wreck um, when, when my mom was very young. And she kept thinking about how her uh, nearly drowning in the ocean um, and his taking the time to dive in and save her did something um, mm -hmm. in, the, in the ripple of, you know, along the time space continuum and might've had something to do with his death. Um, if he didn't do that, would he have delivered that car um, weeks on, um, you know, a split second later and not have died? So, so this is what she tells me to calm me down. Like after, <laughs> uh, and basically like I can empathize, you know, I, I was there too. And so um, I felt like I had to face that a little bit um, in order to um, really make manifest and, and intimate, I suppose. And I hope for a reader, um, my own concerns and how I'd been living with them before I actually like lowered myself through that culvert, like opening into Carl's sub. <laughs> I mean, you know, were, so you said you were writing a book about this. Out of your research you've done so far, either about the history of humans' choices to sink themselves into the darkened depths or, you know, in, in slightly ramshackle vehicles or other DIY submariners. I mean, obviously there's a whole book, but what didn't make it into the piece about this particular obsession, this interest, not addiction, yeah. <laughs> that uh, you feel uh, is, worth, is worth noting? 
That's funny. I was, I was working on the book earlier today. <laughs> so, um, and as, as I'm crafting, yeah, like, I mean, when I'm, when I'm drafting, I'm, I'm a maximalist at first um, when I'm drafting. So there's so much <laughs> I could mention to, you know, to answer, to answer this question. Um, so um, I think I'm still on track. So yeah, the book is, um, I think it's set to be published in like 2025. Um, um, Panthe- it's under contract with Pantheon uh, Books. And um, I'm hoping to get an initial draft to them before the year's out. Um, but goodness, there's there's so much, and everything I find leads me leads me down another path. But um, I guess a couple fun things. Um, the uh, uh, I was writing this morning about this guy Cornelius Drebel. Um, and Great name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, I guess, he designs what we consider to be the first modern day submarine like what we would what we would actually like um we we could still see a modern day submarine in his design um you know some of the early designs you know i mean looked a little bit different like you know the diving bell or the the bath escape i mean they were basically like the bathosphere they were just these these steel spheres but this guy this guy drebbel he was um a Dutch guy. He was an engraver and, and a and a glass worker, and then he was like this amateur engineer. And so, um, uh, he he left for England in the early 1600s, and then, uh, this was like under the patronage of, of King James the First. He he was like contracted by the crown to fabricate a quote unquote um they called it a diving boat, um mm. at the time, and so uh, it was basically um a wooden ship that was then um canopied in a leather shroud that was inadequately waterproofed with animal grease um so it was sort of like this grotesque version of like i don't know plastic wrapping a tupperware bowl um Ooh. you know with this with this like animal hide you know um slicked with fat um, and then it would be rowed underwater with oars. Um, and it was, um, oh my God. yeah, it was like submerged with like this, these hand cranked screw threads adjusting like this series of plungers. And then the plungers would press against these goatskin bags that were lining the sides. So a lot of animals died for Drebbel's boat mm. um, by <laughs> lining the sides of the boat. Um, and that would like increase and, and decrease the, the, the volume of water um, because there was like water, um, being put, uh, let into and out of these these goatskin bags. Um, so, I mean, that was one of the early one of the early versions that I found um, str- strange and both awful and wonderful. Yeah, I'm just just uh, taking a spin with all these goat bladders <laughs> and my oars and my friends who are rowing with me. Um, I guess, do you you know having you said you said you're still sort of kind of processing the experience? I mean, would you ever? go back do you plan to go back either with 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 carl or someone else oh um so i'm really bad with foresight and i'm really bad with making plans so um (laughs) i'm not planning to go back but i am completely haunted by the experience and i think about it every day if not all the time. Um, wow. And, um, uh, huh. If I, 
I could, I'll say this. I could see how it could be an addiction. Um, I, um, took notes, uh, in a notebook at this little flat I was staying in, in Honduras, um, the night after I surfaced and my goodness, I was so happy to surface. I was so happy to come back. And yet I experienced this kind of, you know, solemnity too, this incredible sadness for returning to the surface also. Um, and so I, I, I did like write something in this notebook about how, um, in, in a strange way, I, I, I couldn't um, believe what I saw and I wanted to see and almost felt like I needed to see those things again. Um, and I didn't know, and I still don't know what I'm going to do about it. Um, you know, you know how, when you're looking at something so incredibly overwhelming, um, let's, let's even say something like the Grand Canyon, um, and then you turn your back on it to walk back to the parking lot. And then you almost forget what it looked like because it was Mm. so big and unassimilable, um, that you turn back over your shoulder just to look at it again. Um, or to remind yourself of, of what it was. And then when you turn away again, the same thing happens. Um, this, this, this is kind of what happened. This is kind of what that was like. Um, I, I almost forgot what I was looking at, even as I was looking at it. Um, especially with regard to the, the bioluminescent creatures, um, just mm-hmm. the, the preponderance of bioluminescence that once it showed up at a certain depth, um, it never went away. It was always roiling out there like like the cosmos. Damn. I almost wanna I almost wanna go back and re-ask you the question about the ending. Because I feel like there's something fertile in the fact that you are returned to the state of like childhood where you can't sleep. Um, but you have this sort of like a revised version of this dream that haunted you and that again it's like you don't you've you've experienced this insane uh life-altering experience and you don't really know what to do with it and uh, the the language sort of slips into uh sort of beyond the rational but it's still comprehensible Hmm. I don't know. That's more of a comment than a question. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate those. Why did I say that? Uh, no, no. I, 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 I love it. I feel like that should be like etched into my headstone beyond the rational. Um, so, <laughs> it's still comprehensible. Right, right. right. Well, well, that's not always the case. Um, okay, okay. That's only after I've been edited. Um, so, <laughs> Um, e- either either that or sinking again um, with goatskin bladders. Um, I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I sense great metaphorical import in that, Violet. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I, I guess I guess returning um, re- returning to that 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 dream and re- returning to that that um, you know thing that had been haunting me since childhood. Um, Maybe whether I was, you know, thinking intentionally about it or not, as I was, as I was drafting, um, of course, I, I couldn't help but, um, you know, be, be influenced by a lot of the other um, research uh, that I that I did with with regard to the book and, and things like womb fantasy that I was that I was talking about. And so maybe this odd notion of of return um, to 
um, the space uh, of that dream um, was was just kind of like running like groundwater through the pieces as I was writing it. And in, in a weird way, I, I, I didn't know I was I was doing that. Um, I guess this is one of the most um, frightening and um, uh, oftentimes enlightening things about um, talking about one's work with with somebody else um it, mm-hmm. it's, it's because it, it always proves to me that I oftentimes don't know shit about what I'm, I'm doing and and, <laughs> and 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 my own work and and like the parameters of it and, and 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 things until somebody is like oh you know this this is what happened and I'm like oh my goodness um so and, and it's always like humbling in a wonderful way you know in, in that way because it um I don't know. It teaches me that all all of this is is a conversation. Yeah. Well, I I don't know. I've been just reading a lot of Carl Jung and other Jungians, yeah. <laughs> so I'm just yeah. like I'm in the the weirdo zone yeah. <laughs> when it comes to the numinous. So I'm just like uh, I think that's a numinous experience. We should expand we are on the that. territory Mothers. of the psychoanalysts. Yeah. <laughs> It's back, baby. Um, (laughs) Well, thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Violet. It was a pleasure for me, too. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save. 